2: Hello to you, uh, wherever you are and whenever you're listening. And if you're wondering why you're just hearing my voice instead of music or something else, we're having a little technical problem, which uh, makes it hard for us to play things off of our board. Uh, which is bad because we have like eight movie clips loaded into our... Hey, we have eight uh, movie clips loaded into our board. We may or may not be able to play them for you. But they're they're not all movie clips, too. Some of them are from television. And let me tell you the reason, because that's more important than the technical problem, uh, which is that we're going to have a conversation today, a full show conversation with one uh, writer and cultural critic. Uh, His name is Peter Biskin. Uh, He is the author, most recently, of The Sky is Falling, How Vampires, Zombies, Androids, and Superheroes Made America. A great for extremism. You see, I actually sort of like spaced that out because I I think um, his premise. Well, you're going to meet Peter in just a second. Uh, his premise is, is a really interesting one that that somehow or other the point to which we have come. Uh, as a po- very polarized nation, and, and we're not just talking about Trump and Charlottesville. We're talking about, for example, there's a I think a Michigan State study that's out right now that just says that Americans have drifted, um, just average Americans, and certainly members of Congress have drifted way out to extremes. You know, uh, far more polarized, resulting in a kind of paralyzed political process too, which. Neither side can really get what it wants, Uh, at least only temporarily can either side get what it wants, Um, and then its own slim margin will be replaced by the other side's slim margin. So how did we get here, and does our popular culture have something to do with that? Peter Biskin says yes, Uh, so we welcome him to the show. Peter Biskin, excited to have you and to talk about
1: this. Well, thank you for asking me.
2: So um, I sense that you are nostalgic for uh, at minimum two things. Uh, One of them is the more centrist kind of politics that characterized, say, the 1950s, uh, where you had uh, moderate Republicans, moderate Democrats. There was more consensus. There was less acrimony. There there was the possibility, and it existed not just in the 50s, but um, it existed for quite a while, of putting one's political preferences aside to accomplish something good for the country. So when you say extremism in your title, you're kind of talking about the end of that kind of consensus seeking, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, not really. I mean, I can see why you would say that um, the book makes it seem like I'm nostalgic for, you know, uh, the old mainstream uh, consensus culture, uh, which essentially started at the end of World War II and stretched through the Obama administration with a couple of ups and downs namely um, the Vietnam War, Watergate, and Ronald Reagan. Uh, and in a sense, it's true, I am sort of, you know, the, the polarization, uh, today's polarization has gotten so extreme that um, it does make you a little bit nostalgic for um, that old mainstream culture. But, the, you know, that old mainstream culture was so narrow in a way, um, you know, it pretended to include... All sorts of uh, views all sorts of dissident views, uh, all sorts of um, ethnicities all sorts of religions you know it was um, it was a pluralist um, philosophy political philosophy they talked a lot about the Big tent which would include um, people of all sorts of um, backgrounds and beliefs and so forth and so on but in fact um, what it did was exclude what was then Derided as extre- the extremes, and in those days, after the after World War II, the extremes were, um, you know, the Communist Party on the left, and the um, uh, something like the John Birch Society on the right. Probably nobody even knows what that is anymore. But um, but it it also enforced a certain um, uh, consensus viewpoint that. Uh, Excluded a lot more than, it excluded all sorts of dissent, a lot more than than the centrists admitted. And it became a bland, boring culture. So, you know, in certain ways, it's no wonder that, um, you know, people have gobbled up extremism so avidly.
2: True. And uh, yes, there are days when we might yearn nostalgically for bland and boring just compared to what we have now. But you're absolutely right. There was a way in which the center crowded out the sides. Um, well, let's talk about another kind of nostalgia. Um, uh, many of us are nostalgic for the movies uh, of the 1970s. Scorsese, Bogdanovich, Altman, Mike Nichols, Hal Ashby, I could go on and on. You had these movies that were kind of about complex human subjects that were shades of gray. They weren't entirely uh, black or white, good and evil. And then something happened. And our friend, uh, the cultural theorist, Bill Curry, uh, is one who's pointed this out to me many times, that, you know, like in 1981— on Golden Pond was the number two box office movie in America. And the top 15 box office movies included Reds, Chariots of Fire, and Abstinence of Malice. By 1991, it's kind of thinning out a little bit, but you still got in the top 15, Silence of the Lambs, Sleeping with the Enemy, and Fried Green Tomatoes. These are at least movies about human beings that are lived out at a human scale. There's some interesting humanistic questions. Uh, by 2001, The top 15 movies are getting very, very juvenile and very oriented towards science fiction, fantasy, and action. A Beautiful Mind at number 11 is really the only movie in the top 15, Uh, so the the only movie that large numbers of Americans are going to see that's grappling with any kind of adult questions. And by 2011, well, it's really getting pretty shocking. Everything is either an animated feature, a sci-fi feature, a fantasy feature, The Help at number 13, which I think is kind of a teenager's idea of what a grown-up movie might be like is the closest thing to that, but like the top 35 movies for box office are swarming with science fiction, fantasy, animation, action, which isn't necessarily better, but Peter Biskin, one of the questions that you raise implicitly is, is it possible with that kind of glut of this particular kind of entertainment for movies to still contain ideas? I'm assuming you would say yes, they can contain ideas. It's more a question of what kind of ideas.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's, I think Well, it's an interesting question whether you can have a movie or a TV show or any um, art form, for that matter, uh, completely free of ideas. You know, I mean, even when, you know, in the post-war period when you you started to have um, uh, uh, expressionism and non-representational art and you had blank canvases, you know, the, the, the critics who were, you know, sort of trying to make sense of this stuff started talking about the material object itself and that the art was about, you know. So, I mean, if you look at any movie, I mean, uh, you know, almost uh, the most, appear, uh, you know, a movie that appears to be the most vapid, um, I think, you know, contains ideas. And it's a, as you ended up saying, it's a question of what kinds of ideas
2: Right. So there are ideas that we can, uh, I mean, you know, there's all these studies that indicate that if you read fiction, it actually builds empathy, you know, and probably if you read fiction about people who are sort of recognizable and not cartoon characters, it might build slightly more empathy. But as as your book makes clear, these movies, they are exploring ideas. It's just a question of, as we say, which ideas there are. So let's pick something. I mean, I, I would say that one thing that comes up again and again, particularly in superhero movies, is kind of the Martin versus Malcolm dynamic, right? You've got uh, Professor Xavier, who's Martin. Uh, he's leading a group of uh, of others, people who are excluded from the mainstream of society. They are superpowered mutants as opposed to African-Americans. But um, And he is looking for a way to reconcile their fate with the fate of the rest of society, looking for a way to get his people seen as an asset rather than a liability. And then on the other side, you've got Malcolm, who's Magneto, who's, who's decided no, they're just never going to accept. Us and we're going to have to go for what we need to go for in a very different way, and we could play that out across Black Panther and some other stuff as well, right? But that so there's an example of these movies at least exploring a pretty important dynamic idea. I guess I would ask you whether you think they explore them very well.
1: Well, I think they, I think they explore them well enough. I mean, the very fact that they, you know, I mean that that dynamic that you just described a dynamic that pits extremism against centrism. Uh, You know, Charles Xavier is a centrist. He wants to, he wants the X-Men to be accepted. He wants to, you know, he wants to include them in in society under the Big Ten. And Magneto says, no, that's never going to work. It's not going to happen. They hate us. You know, they being, um, you know, the the U.S. government. You know, there's a a scene in... um, I think it's X-Men. They all sort of blend together for me, ultimately. But uh, there's a scene in X-Men, I think it's X-Men First Class, where um, they stage a version, a Marvel comic version of the uh, Cuba Missile Crisis. And the X-Men are on some beach in the Caribbean and they're faced by Soviets and uh, uh, Soviet and American warships. And um, ultimately... um, you know, the Soviets and the Americans, even though they, um, they're enemies, nevertheless, uh, according to, uh, I forget who says it, but one of the X-Men says, well, they're just humans and they hate us. You know, so the question is whether um, humans will ever accept the X-Men, the mutants, because they're other, you know, and that's what that movie's about. I mean, you know, when you say how well does it um, explore it, I mean, it doesn't explore it in terms of character, really, but it explores it. I guess you'd have to say, um, you know, through through story and symbolism in a way, metaphor.
2: Well, one thing I think we could uh, could at least say, particularly about the Marvel Universe, some of the Marvel Universe movies, so this would include uh, X-Men, Black Panther, some other stuff. Those are the two I'm going to use right now. Just to go back to that particular dynamic is they are more interested than, say, some of the very early comic books and comic book movies in how— The Malcolm gets to be the Malcolm. Right. So it isn't just you know, I mean, I don't think D.C. was typically uh, very interested in how Lex Luthor got to be who he was. He's just like was always Lex Luthor. Uh, Maybe there's some kind of work. Origin story. The Batman villains tend to have had some kind of horrible accident that made them, you know, disfigured and therefore very mad. Um, But, you know, I mean, you have in the case of Magneto a pretty sophisticated narrative about uh, that goes, stretches back to World War II and and the Holocaust, essentially. Uh, And in the case of Eric Killmonger in Black Panther, you've got a similar kind of backstory, right? This sort of, this isn't just some villain who dropped out of the sky being villainous.
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, they're rooted in, uh, in, in essentially, in American reality, even though they're fantasies, you know. And it's, it's, it's interesting and fascinating that the Marvel comics uh, and, and the movies as well harken back to World War II as much as they did. I mean, I think there, there are Auschwitz scenes in two of the X-Men movies, and the, um, you know, this ongoing uh, secret organization of... Um, of Nazis called Hydra goes through um, several different, um, you know, versions of Marvel movies. It's in the X-Men series. It's in the Avengers. It's in Captain America. Uh, it, and of course, Marvel's origins are right, right in the pre-World War II years. I mean, there's a famous cover of a Marvel comic. I think it came out in 1930, about a year before Pearl Harbor, when Captain America slugs Hitler in the jaw, and. That was when America's official policy was neutrality. And it was so controversial that um, the people who who created that cover had to get police protection against the German-American Bund, which was um, threatening them.
2: Right, and there's sort of a, um, I mean, so far we're making a great case for this cult this particular kind of popular culture being kind of a good thing. So we have to get to the part where that where it drives extremism. But let's just stay this with this for a while too, because I think there's an interesting dichotomy between the Marvel universe and for those of you who are um, tourists here. So we're talking X Men, Avengers, Thor, Spider Man, Fantastic Four. Black Panther, all that kind of stuff. And the DC Universe, which is Superman, Batman, Aquaman, The Flash, Wonder Woman. Um, so um, the, the DC Universe, I think, even sounds a little bit different from uh, the Marvel Universe. Like, here's what a villain sounds like in the DC Universe.
1: We take Gotham from the corrupt! <laughs> the rich. The oppressors of generations who have kept you down with myths of opportunity. And we give it back to you. The people. Gotham is yours. None shall interfere. Do as you please. But start by storming Blackgate and freeing the oppressed!
2: It's hard to believe that that's Tom Hardy. But anyway, um, so, um, Peter, I, 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 there's sort of a sense that the DC universe, there's a, a slightly more conservative take, sometimes an extremely more conservative take. We should probably uh, start with Batman, uh, certainly by the time that Frank Miller, the transforming auteur, gets a hold of Batman. He's going to be pushed in, you know, a real kind of Clint Eastwoody kind of direction. Correct?
1: Correct. Uh, yeah, I mean. I mean, if you if you want to use those Dark Knight films as the definition of the DC universe, you know, I think you're, that's true. You know that um, they're much to the right of the Marvel uh, films, and the Marvel films are, you know, I would say, are basically left wing films, um, where the where the um, you know where the X Men and the uh, Avengers are the uh, aliens, the others, you know, and uh, we're on their side, not on the side of government. I mean, there are lots of situations in the Marvel films where the Marvel heroes are dragged in front of Senate committees and government committees uh, one way or another and interrogated and threatened. And the the, the movies are on the side of the the, um, Avengers and not on the side of the government, which is often attacked as being corrupt. Um, uh, The same is true, really, of the Dark Knight uh, series, except uh, the government is attacked from from the right, not the left and um uh that the uh the the uh uh sequence that you um that you reproduced um just now uh is a a very good example of the um uh you know of that right wing drift i mean frank miller was is extremely right wing and not afraid to um you know to uh, to say so and i think christopher nolan is pretty right wing as well not only the Mar- not only the uh, dark knights but Films like Interstellar and uh, a couple of his other movies are, um, you know, I think also lean to the right. So I mean, I guess you could, you could, you know, I think the, it's most pronounced in the, um, you know, the the, the right wing right wing drift is most pronounced in the. Um, in the Dark Nights, but in uh, less so in other some other DC comics. I'm not sure that you could characterize all the DC output in that way. Um, but um, I would I would are. agree.
2: But if you go back to their origins as comic books, and I was a kid reading those comic books, I mean, you know, the DC heroes were kind of straight down the line. Truth, justice, in the American way. These were not considered considered flexible or fungible uh, concepts. Uh, there was not a lot of questioning uh, of uh, of Orthodoxy uh, in those, whereas from the very beginning, the Marvel heroes—they often were unhappy being heroes. They were Spider-Man in like issue six, swung into a psychiatrist's office and tied him up and demanded to know why he was doing such a thankless job. Flying, you know, swinging around in a costume. I mean, what's wrong with me? There's sort of a lot of that kind of questioning that goes on, and much less acceptance of orthodoxy.
1: Well, in, during the during the Watergate period, there's a Captain America comic where. Captain America well, actually tracks down the president in the White House to kill him, because uh... and he's not called Nixon, but he's called Number One, but it's clearly a Nixon figure, and the uh... and the and Number One commits suicide before Captain America can reach him. So I mean, they're very, um... you know, they they were very clearly, you know, they 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 respond to pol, you know, to that to whatever the politics of the period that they're um, you know, that they're in, you know, uh, right, left and center. Although I think overall they tend left.
2: Right. I, and I think with the Captain America, Captain America is kind of like Springsteen. You know, everybody can project what they want to uh, onto him. So the kind of conservative uh, flag waving beer drinking guys can, you know, really uh, sing along with Born in the USA and not think too much about what it really means. Uh, and, and with Captain America, my guess is he's a New Deal liberal. He lived through the freaking New Deal. Uh, you know, he was alive then. He probably imprinted, imprinted on FDR. Um, but... You know, he doesn't scream about that all the time, so the conservative people can well, just it, get off on the flag costume.
1: There's there's one scene in one of the movies where he's arguing with, um, I don't know, somebody from S.H.I.E.L.D. or, you know, one of those type organizations. Um, and the, 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 the S.H.I.E.L.D. person, I don't think it's S.H.I.E.L.D., but it's whatever that, you know, the Redford organization, um, you know, it's, I think, anyway... Uh, they're boasting about a sort of world, world, worldwide surveillance system, which mm-hmm. is going to stop crime before it happens. And Captain America sounds like a member of the ACLU and <laughs> says, you know, uh, aren't you supposed to wait until the, fight, the crime happens to um, you know, to punish somebody? Now you're talking about punishing them before the crime, and he has, wants no part of it.
2: Uh, we're talking to Peter Biskin right now. His book uh, is The Sky is Falling, How Vampires, Zombies, Androids, and Superheroes Made America Great. For extremism. So, so far, I feel like we're not making the case. I mean, we're sort of making the case that you can, you can decode, you can do semiotics uh, on uh, all of these movies and pull stuff out of them. Uh, but we haven't really made the case that the movies are necessarily setting us up to, to flee to opposite political polarities. So make that case.
1: Well, I mean, look, I mean, if you, if you watch 50 movies uh, the feature vigilante heroes breaking the law or taking the law into their own hands, or if you watch 24, you know whatever it was, eight seasons of 24, where you have a rogue uh, anti-terrorist agent doing w- whatever by you know uh, achieving his goals by whatever means are necessary, even if they entail breaking the law or torture. Uh, you're not going to be shocked when you get a president like Donald Trump who takes the law into his own hands and seems to have contempt for the Constitution. I mean, it's as simple as that. I mean, you know, these, a lot of these movies and a lot of these TV shows normalize um, violence, uh, revenge, uh, behavior that used to be um, beyond the pale in the post-war period during the, during the reign of centrist uh, mainstream culture.
2: Um, let me uh, let me run another uh, Bill Theory, Bill Curry thought, cultural theory by you. You're going to want to know who this guy Bill Curry yeah, is by the end of it. Why
1: doesn't Scott
2: pipe up? You know? So yeah, well, no, <laughs> you know, don't don't be careful what you wish for. You would never get to finish any of your sentences. Oh, but really? but one of one of Curry's ideas, which I think is a really interesting one, so we go back to that framework that I proposed at the beginning. That we have, you know, this period uh, during the '70s where movies are complex and reflective, and they're gradually replaced by, you know, an awful lot of you know, costumed crusaders and wizards and animated stuff and, uh, you know, and and fantasy and sci-fi, which it's not as we've just proven that that can't be thoughtful. But there's a way. So Curry's theory is that starting in the Reagan years when American work became less meaningful, unions started to be defeated. Uh, It was less likely that an adult American worker would necessarily have access to a sustaining, meaningful job that he or she could count on for a protracted period of time. It made sense to juvenileize culture at the same time. Can I keep them 14 year olds for life? Uh, and that that was some of where this culture came from. I it seems like kind of a biscuit idea too.
1: Well, it's it's an interesting idea. I mean, I never thought of it. I think, uh, but but I think that sort of infantilization of of American culture started with Spielberg and Lucas back in the '70s, and really, you know, was a backlash again. You know, you started by saying, you know, we all miss those. You know, we all miss Hal Ashby and those early Scorsese and. Uh, uh you know uh, Bonnie and Clyde and so forth you know that that was an era of i guess the first really uh era of extremist films where like a film like Bonnie and Clyde the sheriff is the villain and a bunch of bank robbers who also kill people are the heroes and even though they're killed in the end we mourn them you know we're you know we're we're unhappy and sad and a bit shocked when they die but there are a lot of films like that um uh, butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid, the wild Bunch, et cetera that was and and I think that um um you know there was a backlash against it po- you know obviously with um uh, Clint Eastwood and uh dirty Harry on the right, but there was kind of a centrist backlash- which uh you know and then I'm talking about Lucas and Spielberg I mean Lucas said something like. Uh, you know but we've you know we've forgotten kids are you know we kids have forgotten to be uh we 've forgotten to ki- to teach kids right and wrong and i 'm going to do that in these in these films that i 'm going to make and they harken back to the old serials of the thirties and um and they 're all about you know they're all you know Lucas's fil- lucas' thought of his film as an anti war film and an anti vietnam war film and it was to a degree but um those films are all about um, uh, getting people under the big tent and and also undoing the uh, sort of deconstruction of Amer- of American movies that uh, people like Arthur Penn and, and Robert Altman did um, in the in the years that preceded Lucas and Spielberg. So, a I think that um, his idea is interesting, but I think it started that that process started earlier. Um, and two, I think there are a lot of there are a lot of other factors that enter into this, you know, namely the conglomerization of, um, uh, of the movie business, which had, again started in the late 60s, but really took over in the, in, in the year 2000, uh, or in the 2000s. Also the rise of the foreign markets, uh, because these, these kinds of superhero movies, uh, travel best, and if China, I think 2004 was the first year that the, that the foreign market was was more lucrative than the domestic market. Um, you know, films that are character driven and story driven and peculiarly American don't play well in China. So that's another factor, and then of course you have the technology. You have cable television, HBO. You have um, suddenly you have film. You know, stuff on TV that's. Um, extremely violent, like Oz, which started in the 90s, The Sopranos, where you have the bad, good guys, you know, the good, bad guys, you know. um, Nobody would countenance a hero like, or consider somebody like Tony Soprano to have been a hero 10 years prior to that. And then you had all the... The, you know the gadgets coming out—the phones and mm-hmm. the iPads, and then the um, and the streaming services—all disrupted the sort of consensus programming that you had on the networks and so forth and so on. So, I think all in all, you know, it's a multi-factored—you um, know, there's, you know m- many different, there are many different. Um, Uh, causes for it.
2: Right. So we're going to take a quick break. I think that's going to lead us nicely in the direction uh, of of television. Uh, So we're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about some where some of that consensus seeking and centrism does pop up. All right, we're back. We're talking to Peter Biskin for the whole show. He's the author, most recently, of The Sky is Falling, How Vampires, Zombies, Androids, and Superheroes Made America Great for extremism. So uh, we were talking a little bit about uh, how uh, a lot of these movies, I mean, they do play out uh, heroes and villains pretty much in black and white. There are often subtleties and shifting alliances between Thor and Loki or whatever. But by and large, you know, there, there isn't a lot of consensus seeking. That's not exciting. It doesn't make for a good two and a half hour movie. But where some of that, I would argue, Peter, seems to have gone is to television where you can have these multi-season, multi-episode, uh, long arc stories in, in which occasionally all Ultimately, where they wind up, maybe after a lot of thrashing around and fighting, is trying to figure out some kind of better model. And certainly uh, last season on Game of Thrones, you all know we were going to get there at some point, uh, on Game of Thrones, we heard this.
1: We are a group of people who do not like one another. As this recent demonstration has shown, we have suffered at each other's hands. We have lost people we love at each other's hands. If all we wanted was more of the same, there would be no need for this gathering. We are entirely capable of waging war against each other without meeting face to face.
0: So instead we should settle our differences and live together in harmony for the rest of our days.
1: We all know that will never happen.
0: Then why are we here?
1: This
2: isn't about living in harmony. It's just about living. So those are the voices of Tyrion Lannister, Cersei Lannister, and, of course, Jon Snow uh, right at the end. So, um, Peter, we have uh, this situation here where and what they're talking about is a fairly violent and ghoulish version of climate change. But what you have is a group of superpowers essentially getting together saying, is there some way we can put our differences aside and face up to this?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, uh, you know, it started, Game of Thrones started as a... Uh, uh, I, I would say, a, uh, an extremist show, but it works its way around eventually to being a centrist show when the uh, White Walkers finally attack from the North, which they've been talking about, for you know, anticipating for the longest time, and finally it happens. And so suddenly, um, instead of these dynasties fighting each other, uh, Jon Snow tries to build a coalition. And coalition building is, a, is a, you know, a... Uh, almost a definition of a of of a centrist practice um you know he's trying to persuade in that in that scene that you just played he's trying to- per, uh, persuade Circe to join the coalition of course she won't uh and so she's the extremist and john snow is is the um is the is the centrist and not only does he try to build a coalition but he i mean and part of that is that he takes he he bows the knee to Daenerys. you know when in fact they're two equals, and he accepts the fact that um, if he, he has to make sacrifices for, uh, to fight this common enemy because none of these families can defeat this enemy alone.
2: Right. And so I think the other thing about Game of Thrones that really distinguishes it uh, from an awful lot of genre fantasy, at least genre fantasy that's devoured by millions and millions of people, uh, is it's got a real interest all the way through in governance. You know, I mean, you kind of know a lot about how King's Landing runs and you don't have enough money for a war. You have to borrow money from the Iron Bank. I mean, that kind of stuff. Uh, doesn't I mean I know that there's like a whole section of Star Wars movies that are about inscrutable issues about trade agreements but I, I never really bought any of that um, you know that basically here you see people trying to run at the level of governance their kingdoms in a way that you typically don't
1: yeah I mean the whole show is about I mean it's weird it's amazing because it's you know it's a fantasy set in this never never land and yet it's about power and um and politics and governance and you're absolutely right
2: you know, the, the thing that I find fascinating about Game of Thrones is we now know that I think it's aired simultaneously in something like 170 countries um, because you can't have it running at a different time because then the things will leak out. So they, they show it at the same time in 170 countries and anywhere that it doesn't air on actual television or cable or whatever, it's downloaded, it's, you know, BitTorrented or something. Everybody, I mean, you're not supposed to watch it in Egypt, but everybody does. But that makes me, th- I think ultimately, Peter, and this is not a conversation we can have today, we'll have to wait, somebody will have to have this conversation 20 years from now. What does that mean? I mean, it's very possible that the people who murdered the journalist Khashoggi, Kosoji, you know, watched Game of Thrones and saw Ramsey Bolton do horrible stuff like this. This is, a, this is a piece of culture that's being devoured by everybody.
1: Well, it's interesting, yeah. I mean, I don't think we can, um, um, you know, really uh, settle that today, but... Uh, I know that um, from talking to a couple of um, of writers in Hollywood that the screening services, especially something like Netflix or Hulu, you know are um, reaching for a global audience they 're not interested in shows necessarily that focus on you know that, that will appeal just to American audience. The same thing is happening to them is happening to the movies. Um, they want shows that will that you can watch in Saudi Arabia um, as well as america so that 's a big You know, that's a huge change, um, you know, from, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago.
2: Absolutely. I want to talk about another um, series which I think has made the same transition that you've talked about. Um, when it came on the air, Walking Dead was very much about the most ferocious extremist tribalism. I mean, there were sort of two sets of problem groups. One of them are the so-called walkers, those are the zombies, and then it's kind of like everybody else except Rick, Rick Grimes and his band. All the other humans form into these incredibly dangerous and lethal tribes and and you know, everybody's competing for scarce resources and trying to push each other into the the path of walkers. And it's just the complete breakdown of polity and comity. Uh, And then in the last couple of years, we've seen a difference. And it really started with letters written by a little bit of a spoiler here, uh, a a dying boy, uh, a dying boy on the cusp of manhood. And that, of course, is Carl. And so uh, we have to uh, hear a little bit of what Carl uh, had to say in a letter to his father, Rick. There are workers in there, Dad. They're just regular people, old people young people, families. You don't want them to die, Dad. We're so close to starting everything over and we have friends now. It's that bigger world Jesus talked about. The kingdom, the hilltop, there's, there's gotta be more places, more people out there, a chance for everything to change and keep changing. Everyone giving everyone the opportunity to have a life, a real life. So if they won't end it, you have to. You have to give them the way out. You have to find peace with Negan. Find a way forward somehow. We don't have to forget what happened, but you can make it so that it won't happen again. So Negan, by the way, is this very amoral, bat-wielding, uh, bane-like, uh, amoral. He's not even a fascist. He doesn't have enough of a belief system to be a fascist. Uh, and so, at the beginning when, of this letter, when Carl's talking, he's talking about the people who live in the sanctuary, who are there, the enemies uh, of the people that we've been taught to sympathize with. And he, he says, you know, no, a lot of them are older people, or they're workers, or they're just there. You know, you can't wipe them all out. You got to find some other way. And I mean, Negan is the most hated character who's ever been on the. Show, but you know, Peter, it kind of went in that direction. So that this season, it appears that The Walking Dead also is going to be at least about an attempt to govern, to govern, kind of you know, almost like kind of a post World War II environment. How do you incorporate Germany into your uh, Pacific worldview?
1: Well, you know, one of one of the major um, themes in um, centrist shows is uh, if you're finding if you're finding evil, how do you succeed without becoming the person or the people that you're fighting you know if you're fighting the nazis how do you become how do you win without be, behaving like nazis you know and in the very beginning in the early seasons of the of the walking dead um, uh... rick who's, rick is the leader of this little band of survivors and he's the hero throughout more or less um, you know he starts as a as a as sort of a democrat you know he uh, in the very very first episode i think he disarms uh, a sort of redneck character who's uh intimidating uh a couple of other survivors with with a gun and he says uh, you know no, you know we're we're a democracy something like that you know we're voting you know uh, I'm, I'm you know and he does he leads by um, uh consulting with his followers for a while but as things get worse and worse and more and and tougher and tougher, uh he becomes more authoritarian at the end of i don't know the first episode second episode of the first season he a democracy goes by the board and he says essentially you follow me or i'm I'm leaving you to your own devices and he runs it as an autocracy for a while he runs the group and um still in the first season, he eventually renounces that you know and makes a speech saying, um, you know, from now on, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to revert to consulting everyone. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not a bad guy. I'm not going to be a Negan. He doesn't say that on the first episode because Negan hasn't appeared yet. But in other words, he tries on extremist, um, they try on the extremist behavior, the extremist model for size in a sense, in a sense, and then reject it. Uh, so that, um, He's, he and re, he rejects the model. Of you have to you have to be you have to fight fire with fire, you, and, and he re, he refuses to become as bad and evil as the as the as the enemies that he's surrounded with. So, um, and that happens, you know. More, I mean, that speech that you quoted of Carl, um, I mean, one of the things that happens if you go on for you know eight seasons is you play the same themes over and over again and play out the same things over and over again with slightly different, um, you know, uh, in c- slightly different circumstances. So that's that whole dynamic, getting, you know, behaving worse, your behavior deteriorates. I mean, in one scene in the early, in the first season or second season, Rick is being held captive by uh, some evil, you know, jerk, and he, uh, and he jumps on him and takes a big bite out of his neck. In other words, he behaves like a zombie. And uh eventually he repudiates that you know so that happens over and over and over again and that's the centrist lesson you can't be you can't become the man that you hate uh and and the, 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 you know you can't absorb the evil that you're fighting you have to be uh, hold yourself above that so no torture no cannibalism no this no that uh and that's what the difference that, that's the difference between centrist and extremists. so I mean, one of the characteristics of the Trump administration is he refuses to do that. You know, he sort of endorsed torture during the campaign. And now this, this you know, this current controversy with the, um, you know, with the Saudi uh, journalist. he seems to be t- defending <laughs> the Saudis in what was apparently a hideous crime. You know, so, you know, is he better than the people? He's theoretically, he's not even theoretically fighting them anymore. He's on their side. So. Um, I don't know where I'm going, but if I'm gone, cons-
2: I'm going to Well, that's uh, that to good. Shots. That's good. I'm glad you're uh, mildly confused because I want to uh, take a break right now anyway uh, and come back. Uh, we want to leave some time for our, the final bit of our conversation. We're talking to Peter Biskin, the author most recently of The Sky is Falling, How Vampires, Zombies, Androids, and Superheroes Made America Great for Extremism.
0: In a world that called- the game, So they know what you want, so they make it that way. Do you know what you want? Well it's hard to say Cause they aim to create what you thought you craved, but what you think you craved What they thought you craved before you thought that you would never think that way In this game...
2: a little off topic but when i take a
0: day off i have to get somebody to cover my work does batman have to do that does he have to call aquaman if he wants to get out of gotham and spend a long weekend in vermont assuming that he isn't planning that weekend with aquaman but you know what i mean today's show was produced by jonathan mick pants and me Kyone wolf amanda fish calls zombie fish swimmers our intern is phil Geolopsis. the part of bill curry was played by gary oldman On tomorrow's show, the nose lands on the moon and in New Haven at the same time. We're live from the study. And now, back to Colin.
2: Right. So let me mention a few things really, really quickly. Um, It says here, plug the nose, which is kind of funny. But anyway, the the nose will be live at the study in uh, New Haven on the sort of bordering on the campus of Yale. It's on Chapel Street uh, at 1 p.m. tomorrow. We are talking about the movie First Man uh, and we have a great panel. And you're welcome to join us physically there in the lobby of the study. There's lots of places to sit and people do when we do this and it's fun. Or just join us on the air for our usual conversation on the nose. Also, we're we're doing a show about puns. Uh, And we're having a pun contest. So if you want to be part of the pun contest, you can wait until Wednesday of next week and call us uh, at our usual call line, which we'll give out at the time, or tweet us at WNPR Colin, which you're always welcome to do, or go on Facebook to the Colin McEnroe Show page and add a pun to the Facebook uh, post. And we, the winners of our punning contest will receive some kind of prize, The uh, always popular, some kind of prize distributed by our show. Uh, and we have some judges, and I, we'll explain that all to you. And oh, I have one, one more thing. Thing. i not. I don't even know if I can announce all of this, but I was thinking about this talking to Peter about um, uh, about Game of Thrones. One of the things, one of the ways you know it's probably about governance is that Barack Obama was incredibly addicted to it uh, and didn't want to wait for the episodes to drop and used his presidential authority to force Richard Plepler, uh, the head of uh, HBO, to give him. <laughs> episodes early. Uh, Richard Plepler and I will be having our second on stage conversation on November 15th. I don't know if we've really announced the venue yet, so I'm going to hold off. But if you want to listen to the head of HBO uh, answer questions from me about the kinds of things I'm talking to Peter Biskin about, well, there you go. You can do this. So, um, Peter Biskin, uh, we've got one more segment here. We've got about 8 million things that I want to talk to you about, but uh, author most recently of The Sky is Falling, How Vampires, Zombies, Androids, and Superheroes made America great for extremism. So one of the movies that you talk about in the book is maybe an example of a a pretty extreme left position or certainly a left of center position uh, is James Cameron's movie Avatar. Let's just hear a little clip from that.
0: Those trees were sacred to the Omotekai in a way you can't imagine. Uh, You know what? You throw a stick
2: in the air around here, it's going to land on some sacred
1: fern for christ's sake i'm not
0: talking about some kind of pagan voodoo here i'm talking about something real something measurable in the biology of the forest which is
2: what exactly
0: what we think we know is that there's some kind of electrochemical communication between the roots of the trees like the synapses between neurons and each tree has 10 to the fourth connections to the trees around it and there are 10 to the 12th trees on pandora
1: Which is a lot, I'm guessing.
0: It's more connections than the human brain. Get it? It's a network. It's a global network, and the Na'vi can access it. They can upload and download data, memories, at sites like the one you just destroyed. Yes.
1: What the hell have you people been smoking out there?
2: (laughs) All right. I should just say, I really hate this movie, but um, that's neither here nor there, um, and not because of its politics. Uh, its politics are fine. But so. Um, but Peter, just tell us a little bit about sort of how you see this movie positioned in the continuum we've been talking about.
1: Well, it's, from my point of view, it's a far-left movie um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, number one, uh, the villain is the company. Um, you know, space travel has been privatized. Uh, uh, The company is exploiting a a distant planet, a moon, actually, for its natural resources and bringing them back to Earth for profit, which was a theme in uh, the Alien franchise that uh, Cameron directed uh, one movie in. Um, The um, uh, Marines, U.S. Marines, former U.S. Marines, have become mercenaries uh, and early only in it for the money. Uh, and um, the, the aliens uh, are not only uh, not hostile in attacking the uh, Americans uh, or the uh, space travelers, but they're victims, you know, and uh, they've been, they're being exploited by the company. It's a, it's a model of essentially interplanetary colonialism. And eventually they fight back. Uh, led by an American, um, you know, an American, you know, who's, who's gone to the other side. And science, oddly, was listening to that uh, clip that you played, science is demonized. I mean, the film sort of anticipates the demonization of science that we now find in the, uh, again, in the Trump administration. Uh, so for all those reasons, I mean, you know, and this is, this is at a point where American troops are still fighting in Afghanistan and Iraq. So um, the film, crawl, to, to my mind, crawls very, very far out on a very thin limb politically, and uh, you know, is much more um, has you know much more radical politics than all those films where, um, you know, like that Kevin Costner film, um, something about wolves. Dances with but, Wolves, yes. Yeah, you know, where that you know a white male a white male falls for an, uh, a Native American princess. Uh, half most of those films, the the the, the white go back, the white males go back to their own cultures. Uh, but here, um, uh, not only does uh, the hero defect from the uh, the company and the other Marines, but he actually becomes one of the aliens. So um, the whole relationship between us and them is turned upside down.
2: Right, that's a very eloquent. By the way, you and Bill Curry again. You both like that movie. You both make very eloquent defenses of it. I would just say, for my purposes, I think some of Cameron's earlier movies are essentially about the same stuff. As you said, the second movie in the Aliens series, Aliens, uh, Terminator Two, and maybe to a lesser extent, The Abyss. This is all about Vietnam and the military-industrial complex, and what happens when big defense corporations uh, collaborate with the military, use the military to further their aims. In, in the case of Aliens, the soldiers really don't know what they're getting into. Sounds a lot like Vietnam, uh, and, and he's explored these questions a lot. And, and I just found Avatar to be a little bit heavy-handed and preachy and kind of firm well, belly.
1: Well, you, you know, you can, you can, I mean, I think some of that's true. And I, and I always try to point out that these, you know, looking at movies this way is not to not pass value judgments on them because they are good right-wing movies. Believe me. I mean, uh, I was a big fan of Twenty Four, which is very well executed and very well written and very well acted. And there are a lot of other TV shows and movies like that that uh, fall under, fall under the same fall into the same category.
2: No I would agree um, I, yeah just because the one thing is politically one way or the other doesn't necessarily uh, right. map perfectly onto quality you know we kind of don't have time for this conversation but I just want to mention it really quickly I do think that one thing in reading your work it made me think about one thing that some of these movies do really well is kind of look at the, the so-called other but particularly the other in the world of neurodiversity and, and physical diversity you know there are a lot of people whether it's professor Xavier the new flash in the new DC universe uh, is uh, on the Asperger spectrum somewhere. So is the uh, Benedict Cumberbatch uh, Sherlock Holmes. Uh, uh, you know, we carry Matheson on Homeland is bipolar. Um, the X-Men are just one big statement about physical diversity and and valuing people who are who are built differently from, you know, from the, the so-called typical human being. I think, in a way, these movies have done a pr- and, and let's, let's say the most interesting, reasonable, level-headed, consensus-seeking character on Game of Thrones is Tyrion, who is, by his own uh, term, a dwarf. So re- right. uh, react to that a little bit.
1: Well, I think that's true. You know, I mean, I th- I've always thought— Making Carrie Matheson bipolar in um, Homeland was um, a little bit sexist because she doesn't act that differently from the way Jack Bauer acts on 24, except that she's a woman, and therefore she's crazy, except that, you know, in, in distinction to Jack Bauer, who's a male and and just sort of a dedicated, you know, anything-goes, um, you know, uh, right-wing hero. So, but, but you're right, in a way. I mean, I think that... You know, people like, um, you know, Tyrion, who's, you know, who's a dwarf, and he's also an alcoholic and a sybarite, uh, and yet he's uh, one of the most sympathetic characters on the show. Um uh, yeah. So I, d- I do think, I think you're absolutely right. right. It never actually occurred to me in that way.
2: Well, all right. We have to have a protracted conversation or argument about Carrie Matheson someday because I think you've got her a little bit wrong. But not right now because we're done. But Peter Biskin, what a fascinating uh, conversation. I've really enjoyed this. Uh, the book is The Sky is Falling, How Vampires, Zombies, Androids, and Superheroes Made America Great for Extremism. We'll be back tomorrow with the news from New Haven. Come join us there. We'd love to see you or just join us on the air. We'll have a lot of fun. It is tomorrow, right? I've really, (laughs) this day, this week, one day has kind of melted into another. But I believe tomorrow is Friday and a lot of Friday type things will happen.